Welcome to Mortification of Spin, Bully Pulpit, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. We all find a certain degree of intrigue when thinking about the lives of important men. That's why on this episode of Mortification of Spin, the crew will talk about the life and work of theologian Thomas Oden. At the end of the podcast, we'll tell you how to enter a giveaway for free audio from the Alliance. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin, Bully Pulpit. My name is Todd Pruitt. Glad to be here with you as always with Carl Truman and Amy Bird. And we're here to talk to you today about a man and his book. Uh, this year, uh, Thomas Oden, the theologian, uh, published uh, his biography entitled A Change of Heart, a personal and theological memoir. And the three of us have been reading it and profiting from it. If you're unfamiliar with Thomas Oden, he's... Uh, been around for most of the 20th century. Uh, he's been a public intellectual and theologian, uh, professor, and writer, and has contributed a great deal, although oftentimes we don't know him and know what he's contributed. He's nevertheless contributed a great deal to the theological discussion within the broader context of evangelicalism. Uh, his story is fascinating on a number of counts. Uh, he came to prominence as a, as a young theologian in the radical tradition, radically uh, theological as well as social and political, um, was a part of the student peace and pacifist movements of the 1950s, complete with banjo and Woody Guthrie songs, and um, went through a startling transformation, really a kind of spiritual conversion, where he left his radicalism and embraced historic, classic Christian orthodoxy. And so moved from becoming an influential radical theologian to being an influential orthodox theologian. And it's a fascinating story that he tells. Carl and Amy, what are your thoughts? Any things that uh, you would like to highlight from some of those early days that led him into uh, the, the fringes of, of liberalism? I think it's just stunning how many key liberal and, yeah. uh, and not orthodox thinkers uh, he knew. Yeah. Um, he recounts meetings with Rudolf Bultmann. He has tea with Rudolf Bultmann. Um, he's fascinated by Soren Kierkegaard. He's clearly very au fait with uh, Paul Tillich's writings. Mm -hmm. um, this is not somebody who... You know, took a couple of courses on an MDiv in liberal theology and decided he liked it. This is somebody who was deeply committed to anti-orthodox currents within 20th century theology, manifesting itself also in his, in his activities. He was very involved in the World Council of Churches, um, very involved in left-wing politics. Uh, he was the real deal as far yeah. as uh, liberalism, theological and political, was concerned. Right. He, 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 he writes about his fascination with Saul Alinsky and, and has some really terrific anecdotes. But his, one of his kind of pet projects was to try to appropriate Saul Alinsky um, into the church. 
um, which of course later he reflects on with with great chagrin. But uh, he even has a, a a very fascinating anecdote about a bit of triangulation with with Hillary Clinton and and Saul Alinsky. And uh, I think Hillary is one of one of Carl's <laughs> favorite uh, political philosophers. And so I'm sure that was difficult for you to read, Carl. Unstoppable in 2016, I'm sure. Unstoppable. <laughs> Ready for Hillary? Yeah. <laughs> Well, on, por- on page 43, he says that what he most loved, the three things he most loved was uh, and wanted to learn about was the will to power as taught by Nietzsche, the desire to understand the sexual roots of all behavior as taught by Freud, and the search for radical social change as taught by Marx. So it's just interesting because he also makes the point that um, you know, he thought that he was being critical and rational, and yet later realized that he was ignoring his best critical abilities and following all these innovative thinkers. Right. I mean, here's a guy who, who read and, and approved of uh, Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, there, there was not a single uh, liberal fringe cause that he did not fully embrace and, and right. champion. Indeed, and he also, he's also the man who introduced Wolfhart Pannenberg to reading American <laughs> that's, feminism. I that's mean, that right. is an awesome anecdote. Yeah, yeah. and you know, interestingly, um, you know, he, he references Pannenberg uh, as someone who early on began to challenge some of his thinking. Now, Pannenberg is n- never going to be known as a a stalwart fundamentalist. Obviously, he was a German, but compared to where Odin was, um, Pannenberg was was to the right of Odin, and 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 Odin references Pannenberg's interest in historically verifiable facts. Yeah, exactly as, as a key for him. And, and 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 Odin was shocked by the fact that it was from Pannenberg that he first heard that there might actually be historical arguments for the resurrection of Christ. And that's an important point, I think, that distinguishes uh, people like Pannenberg and what one might describe as traditional liberals, though Pannenberg's relationship to traditional liberalism is is a little more complicated uh, than that. But traditional liberals and conservatives have a common interest in historicity. I remember being at the University of Nottingham, my very first job, uh, being involved in a little coffee uh, time debate with two colleagues, one of whom was a radical Bartian. Uh, one of whom was a radical liberal. And it was interesting that both myself and the radical liberal agreed on the fact that whether the tomb was empty was an important thing. Mm-hmm. The radical Bartian, it was irrelevant to his faith right. whether mm-hmm. the tomb was empty or not. Right. And I think Odin Odin picks up on that in his in his interactions with Pannenberg. But the fascinating thing, of course, is how he comes to his conservative or starts to move in a more conservative orthodox Mm -hmm. direction. And that is when he's challenged by a Jewish colleague Mm -hmm. who essentially says to him, you don't even know the orthodox Christian tradition, your tradition that you have chosen to reject. He told him he was densely ignorant in his Christianity (laughs) and he couldn't permit him to throw his life away. That's what he told him. I mean, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah, and of course it drives him back to reading particularly patristic authors, and amazing to tell, he finds many of the answers provided by patristic authors in the specific pastoral context, the context of psychological pastoral counseling, far more adequate than the answers he's been given by Freud and post-Freudian psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. Fascinating, fascinating yeah. story of his move towards orthodoxy. Yeah, yeah. 
And, you know, it's interesting because along the way he has these really interesting encounters with various people, whether it's Carl Bart in his hospital room or uh, sitting in a uh, police paddy wagon with Robert Bork. Uh, he was the very first uh, guest on um, uh, Robert McNeil's PBS program that later became the McNeil Lehrer Report. He was the mm-hmm. very first guest um, to uh, to talk about, I believe, was was it abortion? Uh, now I'm now I'm forgetting. He, he was he was a guest with uh, Barbara Walters on her first television mm-hmm. program to talk about um, uh, uh, end of life uh, ethical issues with the um, I think it was 1975 Karen Ann Quinlan who who made Nash- I remember as a child my parents talking about Karen Ann Quinlan who was in a, a vegetative state and uh, and there were issues about do we unplug her. And uh, mm. to, to Barbara Walters brings him on thinking that he's a an old fashioned liberal situation ethicist because he'd kind of been branded that. And now he's mm-hmm. just really started to move in an orthodox direction. And to her surprise, he gets on and upholds the Hippocratic Oath and uh, 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 defends those who are wanting to not uh kill this woman in in a coma so uh, he has story you know so so just the stories that occupy the pages of this book are are fascinating he tells them in a kind of forrest gump like way i feel like because yeah. there's so yeah. much name dropping and so many like pe- you know rena- world-renowned people yeah. that he meets just kind of comes but along it just it's he acts like he just stumbled upon them all uh-huh. you know in his uh-huh. pursuit yeah. uh for truth and i just love the way he does that because you just these stories that you're telling, Todd, and sharing, you don't expect that to be on the next page, but it's one after the other after the yeah. other. Yeah, it's really does it very, very modestly. Mm-hmm. Yes. But how would we, we, uh, you know, having read the book, uh, on the base of the book and what we know of, of Odin's wider writings, how would we assess his contribution and legacy? I mean, I certainly, I would say one of his greatest contributions has been the revitalizing of interest in patristic authors among evangelicals and through the ancient Christian commentary and doctrine series that InterVarsity Press have put out, making patristic authors attractive and easily available to to an evangelical audience. They weren't even available, really. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. That's a huge part of, of Odin's contribution. And it's interesting because even with the life he's lived and the contributions he's made, in many circles he's relatively unknown. And I think that speaks to his uh, humility. I mean, he's still, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a boy from rural Altus, Oklahoma, that instead of shunning that upbringing of his, he seemed to always treasure it. So instead yeah. of say, staying in the East Coast up at Yale, where, where people thought he should stay, he, he ends up going back to that region, going back to Texas and Oklahoma. And I think because that's who he's always been, and there seems to be kind of an essential humility about him. Uh, but that said, there are contributions he's made that even if you don't know his name, you've you've felt some of his contributions. And as Carl mentioned, his his interest and his love for the patristics is huge. And when I graduated from seminary, um, I had been schooled in Bultmann and Tillich and Jürgen Moltmann, some Pannenberg, um, and, and, and a lot of Bart. And I, I started reading his systematic not long after I graduated from seminary. And was very helped by it. Actually, gained some clarity on the doctrine of God, where there had been a lot of, unfortunately, some confusion in my seminary education. And Odin helped me in that. Um, he's certainly a big tent kind of evangelical, not that embraces liberalism, but with uh, with more of a 
classic understanding of ecumenism, <laughs> ec- ecumenism uh, with Protestants and Catholics. And of course, he was a big contributor to ECT, which yeah. doesn't thrill us. Yeah, I mean, his, his ecumenism is interesting. And on one level, it's very attractive, this idea that if we go back to the consensus of the early patristic creeds, that's a good basis for church unity. And I certainly want to affirm that. Mm-hmm. I think it has, well, if I can say it has one limitation, but it also offers a particular challenge for contemporary ecumenism or evangelical ecumenism. I think its limitation is that a lot's happened since the early church creeds and lots happened that is important. So it, one could reduce his, his ecumenical proposal to saying, Protestants and Catholics need to give up everything that makes them distinctively mm-hmm. Protestant and Catholic and become Eastern Orthodox, right, and we'll all right. get along. Right. That's that's a rather blunt way of putting it, but that's uh, uh, th- that is the way it's tending. But the second challenge I think it raises for evangelical ecumenism is this: it points us to the foundational nature of the doctrine of God and Christology for Christianity and for ecumenical endeavor. Um, when I look at what I would call informal evangelical ecumenism today, the doctrine of God and Christology really seems to be marginalized and sidelined. You know, Gospel Coalition platforming people like McDonald and Driscoll, who seem mm-hmm. to have a very shaky grasp of the importance of the Trinity. Right. How many uh, modern evangelical leaders affirm the, the eternal generation of the Son? Right. Um, Impassibility impassibility and immutability of God. And Mm -hmm. and let's not forget that heterodoxy has historically crept into the church when people have tinkered with the doctrine of God more than the doctrine of Scripture. So I think that what Odin does is he he does point us towards the foundational nature of the doctrine of God that evangelicals by and large have neglected in favor Mm of soteriology. Right. And... I'm not quite sure what to do with that at this particular moment in time, but I would say we need to be careful about dismissing an ecumenism that is rooted in the doctrine of God and then asserting a kind of stadium celebrity-driven ecumenism that marginalizes the doctrine of God and thinks that if you just play to soteriology, you're doing a good thing. And I think that's a question that that Odin's legacy raises for contemporary conservative evangelicals that many conservative Mm -hmm. evangelicals aren't even aware of, let alone addressing at this point in time. Well, well, Carl, one thing you mentioned before we started recording, which I thought was an important point here, is that you you have a kind of ecumenism when when John Piper appears on a stage with Carl Lentz, for instance, at the Passion Conference. That's that's ecumenism. It's just a, a bad ecumenism. Because and it's more it's more influential absolutely it more ECT. Influential. it's more influential absolutely. than ect absolutely. and he gets away with it scot-free yep because mm-hmm. what's going to happen is because of this passion conference that just happened uh it's introducing carl lentz with the um implied endorsement of john piper to a whole group of people that carl lentz hadn't had influence with and now he's going to and that's mm-hmm. a problem anyway yeah your 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 point on the 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 value that this has, that Odin's ecumenism has to the doctrine of God is very well put and, um, and timely for us, I think. And maybe, maybe in, in reformed evangelical circles now, we're ready to, to once again, after fighting a lot of battles on soteriology, when things like the atonement was under attack, we're ready to look again now at our doctrine of God and see if we've dulled the edges there. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, this book is is absolutely fascinating. It's uh, Thomas C. Oden, A Change of Heart, a personal and theological memoir published by InterVarsity Press. I have to say it's one of the most interesting autobiographies I think I've ever read. Uh, fascinating for its anecdote uh, and also for its implications for contemporary and future church life. And Tom Oden comes across in this book as a a very humble and delightful person, which is quite a difficult thing to achieve when you're writing your own autobiography. <laughs> yeah. But as a, a team, we would like to recommend this book to you. And uh, also check the uh, blog, because we're all going to be offering our further reflections on this book uh, when this podcast comes out. So we look forward to being with you next time, discussing something else in a casual conversation, the, that things that count. Uh, we'll see you then. I ain't got no home, I'm just a roaming round. Just a wandering worker, I go from town to town. And the police make it hard wherever I may go. And I ain't got no home in this world anymore. My brothers and my sisters are stranded on this road. A hot and dusty road that a million feet have trod. Rich man took my home and drove me from my door And I ain't got no home in this world anymore Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, Bully Pulpit, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen who hold the historical creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. Make sure you visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, to enter the giveaway for the Reformed Biography Series from the 2006 Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. The series features biographies of B.B. Warfield, John Owen, John Knox, and Thomas Boston. Tune in next week to hear the team talk with two Canadian cultural icons. Honestly, any country that has given us William Shatner, I'm a fan of that country. So, well, hockey is actually a greater export than William Shatner. <laughs> hockey is a real sport, other than you know the, this baseball thing that Ameri- oh stop that, it. that Americans have stop going on. Stop that, it. Uh, well, well, I mean, I'm just saying that that, that <laughs> hockey is an actual real sport, and baseball, where they're having this. World Series <laughs> featuring two teams from the United States. It's just exhibiting a little bit of hubris, I would have thought. Hear more next week. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to visit mortificationofspin.org to download your free MP3. One thing that I thought was really sad, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, was... This is where he gives up pipe smoking. Yes! <laughs> yeah, I, I knew that that would hurt you. He makes a big point of that at one tobacco point. Tobacco toxicity, one you just, just power through that. You just when he writes about tobacco toxicity, man, you just push through that. We, we need to include that. we got to include that. <laughs> <laughs> no, Sorry, I, Todd. Yeah, I don't know. I would agree, though.